0: welcome to another episode of health creators joining me here today is chris williams founder and ceo of tiga health bringing home care to the elderly hey chris hey so let's start off by asking you a question about what uh, made you start this company
1: yeah of course so Essentially, when I left my last business, I was looking for something new to do. In fact, I even spoke to you about some ideas you were working on at the time. And during that time, my mother needed some care at home. She developed a rare condition called trigeminal neuralgia, which is basically shooting nerve pain in the face. And these bouts of pain could last from 30 seconds to months on end. Uh, And it became clear quite quickly that I wasn't in a position to... To help her with this. And I started looking for care. And when I was looking for care, I quickly realized that there weren't enough people operating in the space in London. There was a huge shortage of providers. And I thought, having had a background in healthcare for some time, maybe I should just give this a try instead.
0: And so I guess it was taking your experience of finding care. And was it like out of frustration as well, where you were like this current process just doesn't work and I need to build something that does work. And how would you say what you've built is different to the experience that you had?
1: Yeah, of course. So I think most care companies are set up to support one of three patient groups. So we've got elderly people mainly with dementia. We've got adults with learning disabilities And we've got people with spinal and brain injuries. There weren't really any providers for rare diseases and indications that less commonly need care at home. So that was one of the things I went straight after. And a lot of our our marketing goes after rare diseases. And we're very proud to support people with rare diseases. I think what really differentiates us in the beginning was we gave all of our carers electric bikes, which Mm -hmm. reduced late and missed appointments uh, due to busy London traffic. We all know about that. Um, So actually improved the quality of care we were offering. Nowadays, I'd say we're more differentiated by the tools we use behind the scenes to qualify leads and also uh, make quicker judgments on whether care staff are appropriate candidates for the job.
0: I see. Um, I guess it's also like empowering the elderly, right? Mm -hmm. Because one thing that I noticed having like worked in a care home before Mm -hmm. Is once you're checked into a facility, you almost lose that agency and autonomy over your own life. Um, And I guess people want to extend the number of years they can actually live in their own home and feel like, you know, an adult in their own home. Mm -hmm. So is that also one of the reasons why? you do this and you make it easier yeah. for people.
1: Absolutely. I mean, patient outcomes at home are significantly better than they are mm-hmm. in a care home. Uh, there's been a lot of research on that and it's very well documented. But I think the other reason um, is it's not just about autonomy, but it's also about making sure people stay connected with their their local community. Um, yeah. And that's what a lot of people uh, that we support really value. We've even had clients that uh, were with us, have gone to a care home, and then come back. Um and it's quite uncommon that people return from a care home back to their home, but the service we offer does does enable people to do that.
0: I guess I, I guess one question is um do you not see like a benefit to being in um, you know, a community within the care home? Because I guess it's almost like how I like to see it's almost like boarding school for elderly people where you can like go in and then you meet a bunch of people who are like your age. And um, I'm not sure how similar the problem is here, but Mm -hmm. in Asia, for example, Japan, we Mm -hmm. see a lot of issues with um, people, you know, who are above a certain age feeling very lonely. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually in Japan, there's like a huge um, outbreak of crime yeah. in like the elderly community because they want to get arrested to be okay. part, okay. to be, to be part of um, a community to yeah. feel like less lonely. You yeah. know,
1: that's interesting. I can't say any of my um, clients have been arrested, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I can say that one of the services we offer is companionship. Oh, cool, um, cool. so loneliness is definitely an issue that many elderly people face in the UK. Mm -hmm. Um, We do have clients where we just come in a couple of times a week. And, you know, it's a, I'm not sure I'd call it care. There's no personal care involved. It's more just going to the shops, going for a walk in the park, having a cup of tea and yeah, just general companionship.
0: I see. And did you like build out that companionship model because you noticed that people were feeling lonely as well?
1: I think so. I mean, I think often... The way um, business comes to us is a, a child of an elderly person is, is concerned about their mum and dad or they've, they've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or a similar condition which they know is only going to get worse and they like having someone come in a couple of times a week uh, and offer this companionship because one, it will help slow down the decline of a condition mm-hmm. like dementia and two, it gets mum or dad used to having someone in their home uh, before things might get more complicated.
0: I see. Um, so they can kind of get accustomed to having someone new around.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's not uncommon for um, clients to be a bit uncertain at first. They might have lived mm. a very long life in their home with, with no assistance whatsoever. Uh, and it's a, it's a really big change. And so sometimes doing things slowly and gradually is a way of making people feel more comfortable.
0: And is there like also a taboo, um, do you think, uh, when people first get started with care, um, you know, when people talk about, do I need therapy or not? Mm. Is it kind of like that, where there's like a bit of stigma around, like, do I need care or can I take care of myself? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we actually ask all of our clients if they're happy for our staff to wear a uniform when they visit. Because sometimes people are worried that the neighbors will see they have care. And I think that's partly because of um, a potential stigma and wanting to appear strong and independent to their neighbors. Yeah. But I also think for some people, they worry about um, you know potential security risk. If someone's going in in um, a TIGO care uniform, and we know our logo is bright orange, it's very. It's very obvious. Um, They're worried that might alert uh, potential thieves that there's someone living here that could be an easy target. So we always double check if they're happy with the uniform. And I think, yeah, I do think stigma plays a large part of that.
0: I see. And do you think there's also stigma? um, And we talked about this right before, but is there a stigma around elderly care because it's not really talked about?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a subject that's not usually talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if you look at the press in the UK, you'll find endless articles every day about the NHS, but you won't find too much about the care sector. And if you do, it's probably about the social care sector, which is only a small segment of it. Um, So I do think there needs to be more of a a conversation so people can understand the challenges and really understand... um, not just the challenges, but the benefits of it. Uh, yeah. I see so many people who who start with our service, and they uh, really regret not starting sooner. Um, yeah. But that's because they thought the only option was to go into a care home, and that's something they didn't want to do.
0: I didn't know that you know elderly care was not provided for by the government. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, in the UK, we have cradle to grave, right, Mm -hmm. Um, with NHS care. So I just automatically assume that um, care for the elderly would be included in that. And then I'm not sure how it works in the U.S., but I know that people like have their 401k, mm-hmm. like with retirement funds. Yeah. Um, and I guess they use that to pay for for services like this.
1: That's true. And from what I, I don't know the U.S. market too well, but I also understand um, a lot of, um, there's a lot of insurance that covers care mm. as well. So there's, there's I'd say there's probably more, more funding available for, for care in the U.S. In the U.K., there's really only... Mm. Three uh, payers, there's the private individuals, which is the majority of my clients, the local authority, um, and that will tend to be what you would uh, think of as as social care, and that's Mm -hmm. means tested and needs tested. Um, And I can't remember the exact figure off the top of my head, but I think it's around £27,000. If you have more than £20,000, then you won't pass the means test. I see, um, and obviously that's um.
0: But like in your savings or per annum. Uh,
1: in your say your net worth.
0: Oh, okay. Um,
1: so yeah, it's not not a huge amount of money, and so most people find they have to pay for the care. The other option is um NHS funded care uh, through the Continuing Healthcare Fund, but that can be a, a lengthy application process and um is very much dependent on your needs. And I I can say most of our clients, despite having um, dementia, diabetes, heart disease, all sorts of conditions don't mm. qualify.
0: So most of your customers are private, essentially. Exactly. Um, and and you were mentioning something earlier about how um, there may be a new regulation that could mm. cover some of this care.
1: Yeah, that's correct. I know they, when Boris Johnson was still the prime minister, however long ago that was now, <laughs> it's hard to keep track, isn't it, of UK politics? He... Um, said that he was going to introduce a cap such that people wouldn't have to spend more than, I think it was around £80,000 in their lifetime on care. Um, and any care that was required after that would be paid for by the government. But obviously, you know, there's been a lot of change since then. It looks like labour uh, might get into power next. So I'm unsure whether that will come into effect. I'm also unsure as to how that would work in a residential care setting like a care yeah. home or a nursing home because how can you... uh calculate what proportion of that is a care service and what portion of that is um you know rent um mm-hmm. and so it makes me think that it's possible that it won't save people that much money in the long run
0: yeah because how much um how much would you typically pay like let's say even like a traditional care home setting like yeah like for you know one year of of care like care
1: so i think the lowest rates i've seen are a thousand pounds a week. So that'd be fifty two grand a year. Okay. And um the highest I've seen, which is a very nice facility in Battersea, is about uh it's about six thousand pounds a week.
0: Oh shit. Um,
1: so it really does vary. So
0: you could pay like three hundred K a year. Yeah. Like every year after like a certain age for care.
1: Exactly. And it
0: That's can be wild.
1: many, many years as well.
0: Yeah, I mean it could be like the last ten, twenty years of your life. Exactly crazy. Um,
1: I should say it's normally cheaper to go through um, a care service like ours. So with us, yeah. a living care package can start from as little as £1,250 per week. Uh, and with that, you've got a dedicated 24-7 care assistant um, who's there to support you during the night, during the day. Um, I personally think it's a, it's a better option um, because you've got someone around you don't have to um, move home, Mm. you feel more comfortable. And also because it's just one individual, you don't have to meet lots of new people either, which can be true in a care home. Yeah. So I don't know, there's lots of options out there. And that's my preference, but obviously I'm a bit biased.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's one thing I always found interesting about the UK because I um, worked in a care home here before. And I could never imagine sending my parents to something like that because, um, in Asia and in Chinese culture, that's like unheard of essentially, like it's, it's quite rare because usually you, um, essentially have your parents and your grandparents live with you. Um, and then you essentially are the carer, Yeah. um, But what would be, you know, your opposition to that?
1: I mean, I don't know if I have an opposition to that. I think that is um, a fantastic way of supporting elderly generations. Mm -hmm. I just think we don't have that culture in the UK. Um, We don't even really have the housing for it in the UK. Mm. I mean, a lot of our clients have to, to move downstairs because of reduced mobility. Yeah, I find it hard to see how um, how the UK is built to really support a larger household where um, children can do that. Also, I don't know too much about um, life in China, but I do know a lot of um, our clients' children who come to us. They, mm. d- they don't even have the time, even if their parents did live yeah. with them, because they're they're juggling careers. They've got lots of children in school, um, and those tend to be the people who are coming to us for for help because they can't. They can't provide that support. So, I don't know. I think I'd th- the, the way that it's, you describe it in China does sound great, and It's a shame that we don't have that sort of culture here or, or the infrastructure for it.
0: Yeah, and I guess... Um, I don't know because I guess there's a difference between caring for someone who's um, elderly and caring for someone who has like a specific condition mm. because you might not actually understand the intricacies of their condition and how to best care for them.
1: That's true. That's completely true. And it does get more complicated as people have conditions such as Alzheimer's. Mm. Um, I can see people often getting quite frustrated as um, their their loved one struggles to communicate or misremembers things. And having someone around who can really help go through that process in an understanding manner um, repeat things in a different way. Speak in a certain manner so it's easier to understand. Mm. It does go a long way to everyone's everyone's peace of mind, both the children and and the their parents.
0: And to what extent do people come to you after you know a situation happens? Like, what's mm. a really common? Um, accident or situation that happens where it triggers people to, you know, start looking and searching for For you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'd say there's one thing that stands out above all else. And that is um, a fall in the night.
0: Mm. So
1: if someone needs to go to the loo regularly during the night, I think I've read it increases your chance of a fall by, I think it was 80%. Mm. uh, So quite significantly. And uh, normally when that happens, someone will be admitted to hospital hopefully they've not done anything too serious. But once they're discharged, they'll get six weeks of reablement care from the NHS. And during that time, um, most people involved, the children and the the individual themselves will see a huge benefit because they've got someone coming in for maybe a short amount of time, maybe just 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes at night. And once that six weeks is up, they start to think, you know what, maybe we should try and continue that. And that's often when they pick up the phone and call a company like ours.
0: And um, do your carers live in the home of the um, person?
1: Good question. So I suppose with care, it's broken into two sections. So you've got your living carers, which will live in the home 24-7, and then you've got your domiciliary visits, and they might pop by for two hours or in some cases it's it's as long as 12 hours. Um, And that really depends on... Well, firstly, if you've got a spare room for them to sleep in, yeah, and then secondly, on um, the amount of care that's required, and um, wh- why you're why you're engaging a company like ours. Some people do it for peace of mind. Some people yeah. do it um, out of necessity because mum or dad is unable to wash themselves. So it really, yeah, it really depends what you're looking for at that stage.
0: Cool. And um, how do you actually make sure these carers care? Okay, yeah. You know, like cuz it, it is a job at the end of the day. Like yeah. and if if I'm just getting paid to go and um, you know, take care of people but there's actually no one monitoring what I'm mm-hmm. doing. I'm not in a social environment like a care home where, you know, other people are monitoring and and yeah. and you know, there's that sanity check. How do you make sure that um when it's just a me and the vulnerable person that I'm not going to, you know, do anything bad?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And there's no short answer to that because there's a lot of things that we do. So I suppose it all begins with...
0: Toggle. for. (laughs) (laughs) It all begins with
1: uh, the recruitment process. So it starts Mm -hmm. off with um, a DBS check. So we check their criminal records and if they're on the barred adults list, uh, we get references and we follow them up to make Mm -hmm. sure everything on the CV is correct. Um, And then once they start, we put them through our own induction training and the care certificate program. And normally you can get an idea from um, the questions that are being asked as to whether this person is inherently caring um, and kind. Um, After that, they start shadowing some of our staff. We get feedback from those staff as to how they're interacting with the client. And I can tell you carers are very good at telling someone else is a very good carer and they're more than happy to give you that feedback. Well, if we judge that they're suitable to work on their own, uh, to do loan working, then during their first month, there'll be many spot checks, uh, many supervisions uh, to try and make, continue to ensure we've made the right decision. Yeah. And I could go on and on about what we do after that, but I think that gives <laughs> you an idea of- um,
0: The which, rigor. The rigor,
1: because yeah. you don't, you don't want to be making a mistake. And it's also worth saying, most of our clients do have mental capacity. So most of our clients would tell us if there was something amiss. Um, but at the same time, not everyone has mental capacity. So it's important that we we do our best to make sure everyone is with a top standard.
0: That's cool. Um, I guess it also helps that you didn't go down the whole VC route mm-hmm. because... Um, I guess if you had started off saying, I'm going to raise a lot of money and grow this as mm. fast as possible and hire as many carers as possible, the risk there may have been higher, but, um, you know, you didn't and you decided to bootstrap the company, which I think is very impressive. Um, because I almost meet like zero health tech founders <laughs> who do that, yeah. but, um, I, I'd love to, to, Um, talk about that because I know that you went through YC, your first company, and it was, you know, the standard, you know, how to build a startup experience, right?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I suppose with a business like this, I didn't want to go down the venture capital route because I didn't want to be working on a seven-year or 10-year timeline as those funds are often designed to do. Uh, sometimes they extend it to 12, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, because I saw with this that what mattered first to create a successful business was to offer a service that was well-liked and that yeah. it could have a really slow growth at the start, mm-hmm. uh, but as you build up uh, a reputation in each, each geography and uh, more and more so online on the relevant... Yeah uh relevant channels there like Google and homecare.co.uk, mm-hmm. that it would become easier and easier to to grow faster and faster. And I was I was a bit concerned that mm-hmm. that hockey stick growth would be very flat at the beginning. Yeah. Um and it wouldn't be meeting um the the interest of investors. And okay, maybe I could raise a pre-seed, maybe I could raise a seed. But after that I didn't see I didn't I didn't see I didn't see a Series A or a Series B in the future, and I also yeah. couldn't see how that would necessarily help um,
0: the situation. The situation. Yeah. I thought
1: it would actually probably just make matters worse. Yeah. Um, so I decided in this one to just do something. Well, I suppose a bit unconventional healthcare, and then but then also I say I'd say it's it's also doable in this. I don't want to mm. say all healthcare founders should not raise venture capital if, if you're building like, a pharma product. I mean, you've really got no choice, have you? It's going to be impossible mm. to bootstrap because it takes so much money to develop. So I don't know. It works for me in this particular business. Um, I'm not sure if it could work for everyone.
0: Yeah, but um, how did you find the experience different between building, you know, the typical almost VC product and then really building like a product where revenue is your only way of survival?
1: Yeah. I mean, I suppose for me, it was about getting to... Profitability um, mm-hmm. as quickly as possible, um, without without having any sort of uh, negative impact on the service. So I suppose it's still very much based on on numbers. It's just looking at a different part of the the balance sheet, I guess.
0: What would your advice to other founders who are who are considering do we go down VC or not um, be
1: I suppose, I suppose the main question to ask yourselves is: Does your business plan look as though you can reach profitability without without venture mm. capital? Um, if it's possible, then it's definitely worth considering. You'll have, I think, you'll have a uh, a lot more time to focus on your business. You won't have to do any investor updates or anything like no that. No board
0: meetings. No board <laughs> meetings.
1: Yeah, no board <laughs> meetings. Um, so, yeah, you'll have a bit more time to focus on your business. Um, but at the end of the day, if you need money, you need money. Yeah. And if it turned out that in two years' time, I thought I needed money to get the business to the next level, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no to venture capital. Mm. I just feel as though for this first part of the business's journey, it wasn't necessary.
0: Awesome. And um, final question for mm. me. Um, you know, what's the what's the one impact you want to leave on the world with TIGA?
1: Ooh, what's the one impact? I mean, I think for me, I want to make it more clear that care can be delivered in a safe and caring manner. Because mm. you read about so many horror stories in the news, yeah. whether it's in a care home, a nursing home, or in a domiciliary setting mm-hmm. like mine. And I really just want to have a company that is known for always offering a fantastic service and to t- demonstrate to, to the UK and maybe to the broader world that it is possible to have a safe and caring and effective service.